Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here and to receive this award. And lately, I've been feeling a bit nostalgic about, you know, when the project first began. Can we turn? When the project first began, and it was exactly 10 years ago when I was writing my dissertation proposal. And I still remember the time that I was going around asking for advice from different professors at Columbia. And everyone told me that, you know, Victoria, you have to be crazy. <laughs> and the only exception at the time was Professor Jack Snyder. And of course, it was Jack Snyder who actually stimulated me to work on this topic in the first place. In spring 1996, sounds like a long time ago, I took his class, Methods in International Relations, and one day he asked a very simple question. If Wall's balance of power theory was right, how should we understand the fatal balancing against the state of Qin in modern states China? Now, this question is very simple from the perspective of IR theories because IR theories tend to be, you know, we believe that they are universal, and therefore we just go around testing these theories in different cases, right? But I felt very uneasy. I grew up in Hong Kong, and I had been indoctrinated for most of my life that unification was the natural course of Chinese history. So how could anyone even ask the question why the balance of power failed in China? And then the more I learned about um, more ancient China, the more I was excited to find that although China and Europe witnessed divergent outcomes, China in the spring and autumn of modern states periods actually experienced very similar processes of international competition and state society, state society relations. The ancient Chinese period I'm concerned with begins in 656 BC and ends in 221 BC. The early modern European period begins in 1495 and ends in, in 1815. Now, both ancient China and early modern Europe experienced prevalence of war, this disintegration of feudalism, formation of international energy, emergence of territorial sovereignty, configuration of the balance of power, and attempts at universal domination. So what I later came up with was to build, it, to build the divergent sets of perceptions into my very research puzzle. Why is it that political scientists and Europeanists take for granted checks and balances in European politics, while Chinese and Sinologists take for granted the coercive universal empire in China? And then I frame my operational research questions as follows. Why is it that ancient China and early modern Europe share similar processes but reach diametrically opposite outcomes in international competition, or what I call system formation? What accounts for the early stability of checks and balances but the eventual triumph of domination in ancient China. And what accounts for the early convergence, but the eventual divergence of the ancient Chinese and early modern European trajectories. My answer is what I call the dynamics of competing logics. Now, IL scholars have been debating for a long time whether it is the balance of power or the rising cost of expansion that explained the failures of all these historical, uh, historical attempts at domination, whether by Charles V, Louis XIV, Napoleon, Hitler, or other historical examples. I think these debates miss a larger picture. I argue that international competition unleashes two opposite sets of causal mechanisms which engage in strategic interaction in the ongoing processes of system formation. And I subsume the mechanisms of balance of power and rising cost of expansion under what I call the logic of balancing. I think that tells us only half of the picture. We also have to look at the opposite logic of domination with which the logic of balancing has to compete. The logic of domination includes counterbalancing strategies 
ruthless stratagems, and self-strengthening reforms. Now, when we try to understand the balance of power, we actually have to pay attention to the very well-studied collective action problem. Many balance of power theorists presume that balancing alliances are automatically form in the face of threats. But participation in balancing alliances is actually very costly. So if we assume that state actors are rational, and which a lot of IELTS scholars do, then we should ex expect states to free ride on the efforts of others and even to join with domination seekers to share the spoils. And on top of the inherent difficulty in forming balancing alliances, domination-seeking states may also pursue counterbalancing strategies to divide targets one at a time. And counterbalancing strategies may work better if domination-seekers also use ruthless stratagems. Now, I used the term Machiavellian because Machiavelli argued, advised rulers of the time that they should pay no attention to what is just or what is unjust, or to what is kind or cruel, or to what is praiseworthy or shameful. Now, I understand that Machiavelli, and this term sounds very Eurocentric, but actually many Chinese military classics also argue that the military is the way of deceit. And then as for the mechanism of rising cause of expansion, domination seekers can pursue self-strengthening self reforms to simultaneously minimize the cost of expansion and also maximize the coercive capabilities. Now, what are self-strengthening reforms? Camus tells us that international competition compels states to, to pursue internal balancing moves, that is, to increase the military strength, to increase economic capability, and to develop clever strategies. I think Walls overlooks two important issues. First, Walls observes that states, at a minimum, seek their own preservation and, at a maximum, drive for universal domination. But then he presumes that states pursue these military, economic, and strategic moves only to balance against attempts at domination. We should not overlook that states with higher relative capabilities are also better positioned to pursue opportunistic domination and even domination. And so I prefer the more neutral term, self-strengthening, to the more one-sided term, internal balancing. And the second point is that for Walls, the international, international structure of anarchy is so constraining that there's no way to look inside states. And so it happens that I also have studied a lot of um, theories of, of, of state-society relations. It occurred to me that <coughs> efforts at increasing relative capabilities necessarily involve mobilization of human and material resources, which is the very subject matter of state formation theorists. So, for example, Charles Tilley and other, others argue that War and preparation for war involve rulers in extracting the wherewithal of war, which then creates the central organizational structures of states. The critical processes of state formation include monopolization of the means of coercion, nationalization of taxation, and bureaucratization of, of administration. Now, if a state tries to increase military strength by building a national army, increase economic capability, by introducing national taxation and develop clever strategies by replacing aristocracy with meritocracy, then it is simultaneously building state's capacity. So we can see that Wall's internal, internal balancing moves and Tully's state formation processes are actually mutually constituted through self-strengthening reforms. 
Now, I have really highlighted the importance of self-strengthening reforms because they improve the logic of domination in both interstate competition and state society struggles. Military reforms can enhance fighting capability in international competition. They also help to tilt state society struggles in rulers' favors when states establish um, a monopoly over the means of coercion and also establish standing armies, then armed resistance can be more readily crushed. When states introduce economic reforms, they have more money to build larger armies, also more money to build larger police forces for internal repression. And when states establish, introduce inter, uh, national taxation, they also can enjoy a much wider resource base and therefore also right of autonomy from narrow groups of resource holders. And then main reforms result in bureaucratization, which then facilitates mobilization of resources, develop, development of strategies, and consolidation of conquest in international competition. At the same time, bureaucratization also facilitates surveillance of society and prevention of resistance in both domestic territory and conquered territory. So if we add all of these elements together, we can see that we can see the domination-seeking states with enhanced administrative capacity are more likely to be able to mobilize more resources for war, enjoy higher chances of victory, consolidate conquest, make conquest pay, and also repress very likely resistance. When all these things happen together, then it is possible that the logic of domination may snowball all the way to universal domination. Now, I also want to emphasize that in the, this competition between the logic of domination and the logic of balancing, we should understand this process in terms of strategic interaction. Processes of strategic interaction allow for multiple equilibria, and the outcomes are unpredictable a priori. So while this means that we really have to look at how these competing mechanisms and strategies are actually played out in historical context, and this is why we have to look at history. Um, before I take you to the historical analysis, let me say a few words about my method. Um, I don't really know how many times I got the comment that China and Europe are not comparable, period. I mean, repeatedly, even now that I get these reviews from historians, and this is the one thing they say, and I was just giving a presentation at Princeton. It was organized by uh, essentially the East Asian Institute, and so many historians show up, and again, the one thing that they said, these two cases are not comparable. This objection, I think, is correct if we follow the conventional method of, of common foundations. This method requires the researcher to find cases that are very similar, as similar, as similar as possible on all respects, except for the most important explanatory variable variables. This method is often captured by the phrase other things being equal. But for scholars interested in comparative history, other things are rarely equal. So McAdam, Terrell, and Tilley, they advocate the uncommon foundations method. So we can then use peer comparisons of uncommon cases to find out how the recurrent causal mechanisms combine differently with varying initial and environmental conditions to produce radically different outcomes. I follow this historical institutionalist approach and pay particular attention to initial conditions, timing, and path dependence. This approach is very common in the literature on state formation, and I combine it with a structural approach very common in the IR literature. 
So on the one hand, international competition compels similar causal mechanisms and strategies in both cases. But on the other hand, differences in initial conditions shape the timing in the adoption of self-strengthening reforms, which then take the two cases on two different trajectories. So I have opposite forces pulling together and pushing apart two cases at the same time. Then we can understand the early convergence, gradual divergence, near convergence, but eventual divergence of two historical trajectories. At the same time, I also want to give due regard to both cases. I know that the, in the usual our approach is to take the European experiences as the norm and then treat other non-European cases as deviant cases. Now, I think it's fine if our the cases are uh, decision-making processes, but my cases are historical systems, essentially civilizations, how we can call other civilizations deviants, I'm not exactly sure. And so I follow what Pimon calls symmetric perspectives. I first use Eurocentric perspectives to analyze the ancient Chinese case and then use the ancient Chinese case to reflect on the more familiar European case. This approach is tantamount to using early modern Europe as, an, as a real counterfactual China and ancient China as a real counterfactual Europe. Now, the usual counterfactual thought experiment is that you try to imagine what would have happened had the hypothesized cause been absent. But then I have these real counterfactual cases that can tell me exactly how differently events could have turned out. I guess let me first use the Eurocentric perspective to analyze ancient China. Campbell's actually suggested many years ago that we should look farther afield to the China of the Warren States era and see that where political entities of whatever sort compete freely, the characteristics are similar. Indeed, the Eurocentric mechanisms of balance of power and rising cost of expansion operated in the ancient Chinese system. For over three centuries, from 656 BC to the turn of the first century BC, ambitious hegemons rose and fell attempts at domination were made and checked. However, the state of Qin eventually defied the expectations of our theories and established universal domination in 221 BC. And we can see how Qin expanded. In the early multi-state era, Qin was relatively small compared with other great powers on the central plain. In about 450 BC, Qin began, became bigger but it expanded mostly in the periphery, not against other great powers on the central plain. And then in 350 BC, Qin had expanded even more. But I want you to pay particular attention to the fact that Qin was blocked from the central plain by the Yellow River. And not just that, in the early fourth century BC, Wei, this is Wei, was the hegemonic power of the time and Qin lost some pieces of territory on the west bank of the Yale River to Wei. And then in 257 BC, Qin occupied about half of the territory of the system. And later on, from 236 BC on, Qin launched the final wars of unification and eventually established the first empire in 221 BC. Now, how did the originally weaker Qin achieve such remarkable expansion and eventual domination over time? I want to emphasize again that the Eurocentric logic of balancing continued to operate. First, other states in the system, they did form balancing alliances against Qin. And second, 
Qin faced the problem of rising cost of expansion. Qin was located in the peripheral west, and therefore had to travel a long distance as we conquer west and eastward, sorry. Another important thing to keep in mind is that for many IR people told me, well, it's just geography. Geography explains the unification of um, this system, but uh, failure of it in the European system. That argument somehow just presumes, I guess, that you know maybe China was just a flat plain. But we already looked at the Yellow River, right? Qin was also blocked by the Taihan Mountains that protected Zhou and the Qin Ranges that protected Chu in the south. Now, these counterfeiting mechanisms slow Qin's rise to universal domination. But Qin managed to overcome them all with the logic of domination, or what I call the strict combination of counterbalancing strategies, ruthless stratagems, and self-strengthening reforms. Now, let's look at self-strengthening reforms first. <coughs> From 356 BC on, about the time of Map 3, Qin began to introduce comprehensive reforms. To develop careful strategies, Qin completely eradicated the nobility from the administration and established strict meritocracy. To increase economic capability, Qin granted lands to the whole registered male population and rationalized various taxes. To increase military strength, Qin introduced universal military conscription and also established an elite professional force. To improve the chances of victory, Qin offers his generals and soldiers handsome rewards for military contributions, but severe punishments for evasion of military service, surrender to enemies, and losses in war. These rewards and punishments were very effective. As Douglas North and Robert Thomas tell us, material incentives can enhance international competitiveness by bringing social and private rates of return into closer parity. In addition, Qin overcame the mechanism of rising cost of expansion by proceeding with piecemeal encroachment. So it, it slowly he can encroach on, on his neighboring states and then use pieces of territory conquered earlier as four bases for targets further away. And to make conquest pay, Qin imposed taxation and COVID on conquered populations. Now, that was uh, the one element of self-strengthening reforms. Another element in the logic of domination is the divide and conquer strategy. Qin would also break up balancing alliances and, and forestall the formation of new alliances. Well, as it turned out, the counterbalancing strategy was very easy. Just as the, lo as the logic of collective action would predict, the warring states were very indifferent to mutual defense when they were not themselves the immediate targets. Even more importantly, Qin's targets pursued their own opportunistic expansion. They would fight bitterly to scramble for territories from smaller states and also from each other. So for a long time, it was not obvious that Qin was the most threatening state. The third element in the logic of domination is the use of ruthless stratagems. Qin would use stratagems such as deceit and bribery to sell his court among allies, to get rid of combatant generals, and even to turn near defeats into total victories. And we can look at a few examples. In 341 BC, about 10 years after what we see on map three, Qin invaded Wei. Now remember I said earlier that Wei was the hegemonic power in the first half of the fourth century BC. Wei lost this status to Qi after a decisive, decisive defeat in 341 BC. So Qin then wanted to take the advantage and invade Wei. 
But Qin's commander was not confident that he could win Wei in, in the direct confrontation. And so he invited Wei's commander to Qin's camp to negotiate a peace agreement. But, the real, but what he really wanted to do was to seize the Wei, Wei general. Then he could defeat the Wei forces with minimal fighting. And from then on, the Qin-Wei balance of relative capabilities was reversed. Three decades later, in 312 BC, sometime between map three and map four, the Qin, of course, was even more powerful, but it was still weaker than Qin in the northeast, which was the hegemonic power, and Chu in the south, which was China's biggest Qin. Not just that, these two states were allied together. What Qin did was to, was, was to offer Chu's king about 600 Chinese miles of territory if Chu would agree to break up with Qi. Chu's king took the offer, but Qin ceded only six Chinese miles of territory. Now, Chu's king was very upset and launched a poorly planned campaign against Qin. He was defeated, and at the end of the war, Chu even had to cede 600 miles of territory plus two big cities. So again, at the end of this war, the Qin-Chu balance of relative capabilities was reversed. And then later on in 247 BC, 10 years after what we see on map four, now, there was a balancing alliance against Qin in that year. It is quite remarkable that a balancing alliance at, at such a late stage could still defeat Qin's forces and push them all the way to the east bank of the Yellow River. That alliance was under the unified command of a general from Wei. To reverse this setback, Qin then bribed high officials in the court of Wei to spread the rumor that that general had ambitions to take over the throne. The king of Wei believed the rumor dismissed the general, and the alliance was dissolved. From then on, there was no more effective balancing alliance against Qin. So overall then, with the relentless pursuit of the logic of domination, that is, divide and conquer strategies, ruthless stratagems, and self-strengthening reforms, Qin could score victories after victories. Now many people will often, often ask me, why did other states not emulate Qin's policies and strategies? The answer is that they actually did. It's important to keep in mind that, unlike the situation in, in, of revolutionary France, the pursuit of domination, the pursuit of self-strengthening reforms, it was not a unit-level phenomenon. Rather, it was a systemic phenomenon. And in fact, Tim was a late comer in the whole game of hegemonic competition. So during Tim's early rise to preeminence, Tim was eclipsed by, by, by Qi for three, about six decades from about 356 BC to the turn of the third century BC, Qin was actually, Qin um, uh, was much less, less powerful and less expansionist than Qi. And in fact, Qi was considered the most threatening state, and so an anti-Qi alliance was formed in 284 BC. Qi was almost wiped out. Now, after 284 BC, Qin finally emerged as the most powerful and the most expansionist state in the system. However, Qin had already severely beaten his immediate neighbors, Zhou, Wei, Han, and Chu, when they were still in the shadow of Qi's hegemony. And also, at each victory, Qin seized territory and killed enemy soldiers en masse so that losing states could not easily recover. With ever dwindling resources, it became increasingly difficult for other losers to put up effective resistance. Later on in 236 BC, Qin launched the final wars of unification. At that point, 
Chin abandoned the old policy of gradual, gradual uh, piecemeal encroachment and adopted a policy of rapid conquest. Because Chin ex expected other states to put up very fierce resistance, knowing that they were facing imminent death. Chin also complemented military campaigns with massive bribery of high court officials in other states so that these officials would convince the king not to engage in last military, uh, military build-ups or to form new balancing alliances. As a result, in the final struggles for survival, Qin's targets could only resort to self-help, not in one sense of self-balancing, uh, of, of, uh, but in the literal sense of self-reliance. They were fighting alone, and therefore they were defeated one after another. Now that we have some idea of what happened in the ancient Chinese system, we can use that case to rethink the early modern European system. So if the logic of domination actually succeeded in the ancient Chinese system and Qin achieved domination. Then why did the logic of balancing survive in the early modern European system? I argue that in light of the ancient Chinese experience, what really happened in Europe, the domination seekers failed not because they were blocked by the balance of power or the rising cost of expansion but rather they came significantly short in the pursuit of the logic of domination. Now, among the various policy tools, European rulers were very good at, at counterbalancing strategies, but they did not pursue ruthless strategies to the same extent and certainly not against fellow Europeans. But the most important thing is that the earliest hegemony sequence in Europe pursued self-weakening expedients rather than self-strengthening reforms. Now, what is the difference? To put it very briefly, self-strengthening reforms refer to internal balancing moves that mobilize more resources by relying on, on mobilization of, by improving administrative and extractive capacity. Self-weakened expedients refer to internal balancing moves that mobilize resources by relying on intermediate resource holders. Now, remember we said earlier that in ancient China, Ambitious rulers will increase military strength by building national armies. They try to increase economic capabilities by introducing national taxation and develop clever strategies by establishing meritocratic administration. As a result, these ancient Chinese states were able to, were able to mobilize more resources for war, enjoy higher chances of victory, consolidate conquest, and make conquest pay. Now, in early modern Europe, the story is slightly different. It is true that the earliest hegemony-seeking rulers also pursue internal balancing in the sense of building larger armies and raising more revenues. But they differ in how they achieve the same purposes. <coughs> so instead of building up their own administrative capacity to mobilize resources from their own populations, they turned to intermediate resource holders. They relied on military entrepreneurs to build mercenary armies they relied on tax farmers to collect ordinary taxes. They relied on creditors to provide extraordinary revenues. And they relied on fellow officials to fill administrative positions. Now, there's no doubt that such self-weakening expedients could mobilize more resources for immediate campaigns. But I think these efforts were self-weakening in the long term. And among various self-weakening expedients, I think the use of military entrepreneurs is the most problematic. First of all, military, military, mercenary armies were fearfully expensive. 
They were so expensive, in fact, that both the French court and the Habsburg house were constantly on the verge of bankruptcy. European rulers then became heavily reliant on contractional loans and sale of public offices to generate more revenues. But then such policies actually alienated ever more future sources of ordinary revenues and drove these days into ever-escalating fiscal crisis. Mercenary armies also had low fighting capability. As Machiavelli lamented, mercenary troops were cowardly and useless on the battlefield. They fought only to collect the pay. They had no reasons to risk their lives. And when rulers could not pay, which happened so often, then mercenary troops would mutiny and military entrepreneurs would surrender to the enemy side. Also, monetary entrepreneurs were quasi-independent power holders. They often refused to coordinate with one another, even to follow rulers' orders. So for a long time, European armies had very weak central command. Now, of course, European domination seekers could still win wars from time to time, especially when they fought weaker neighbors. However, because even the most powerful hegemony seekers in Europe did not have the administrative capacity to mobilize resources from even their own populations, they also could not consolidate conquest. They could not make conquest pay. As a result, international competition was rather limited for most of the early modern period. This scenario began to change in the mid-17th century when Brandenburg, Prussia, a puny state less burdened by the self-weakening experience of more established great powers began to embark on internal balancing through administrative reforms. As Prussia propelled itself to the great power status, Russia and Austria also adopted some self-strengthening measures. Similar to self-strengthened states in Europe, in China, self-strengthened states in Europe also pursue opportunistic expansion and they later partitioned Poland. International competition became even more intensified in the, in the revolutionary era. The revolutionary regime overthrew very centuries-old self-weakening expedients and introduced direct rule, universal conscription, and national taxation. At the same time, the principle of meritocracy allowed Napoleon to rise to the top. Napoleon was not just a genius on the diplomatic front, but also on the military front. So then with the combined logic of domination that more closely resembled what happened in the ancient Chinese system, Napoleonic France was, was able to sweep across the European continent, conquer weaker states, and make conquest pay. At the height of Napoleon's strength, Europe was on the verge of following the ancient Chinese trajectory. Nevertheless, the early adoption of self-weakened expedience continued to shape the European trajectory. Even the self-strengthened France lived in the shadow of a self-weakened past. France inherited huge national debts from the old regime, so despite dramatically in increased ref revenues from reform taxation, France could not finance the empire-building pro projects solely through its own national resources. France had to rely on, on allies to provide both human and, and material resources. It was therefore vulnerable to the defection. Moreover, the early use of mercenaries, along with loans and credits, had left France's number one rival, Britain, to develop a public credit system. So while France was tight on cash, Britain could raise cash at ease and then buy and then use its immense wealth to buy all these allies. 
Therefore, France was even more vulnerable to the logic of balancing. So to put it very briefly again then, I argue that the mechanisms of balance of power and rising cost of ex expansion do not, are not enough to explain the European outcome. The balance of power in particular was very weak in both early modern Europe and ancient China. What really explains the survival of the European system is the much weaker logic of domination. Now, I understand that this comparative historical analysis leads us to, another, leads to us to ask another important question. If self-strengthening reforms should, should significantly enhance the logic of domination, then why did the earliest hegemony-seeking rulers in Europe pursue self-weakening expedience instead? Um, I am now doing research in Hong Kong, and when I give this talk in Hong Kong, a lot of my Chinese colleagues would like to say, well, we Chinese are just smarter. But you know, we are political scientists, we can't use that argument. I argue that international competition did compel self-strengthening reforms in, in Europe as well as in China. And I just, just discussed how this development came about belatedly at the turn of the 18th century. I want to add that this development also came before the onset of the early modern period. At the last stage of the Hundred Years' War in the 15th century, Charles VII of France had to fight the English king to reclaim, both, uh, to reclaim France. So faced with this struggle of survival, Charles established royal monopoly of both coercion and taxation. He formed a, a cavalry from French nationals he also rationalized and increased various direct and indirect taxes. Now, if France has stuck to such rudimentary self-strengthening measures, then I think the European trajectory would have looked a lot more closer to the ancient Chinese trajectory. But Charles' policy package also included the hiring of mercenaries and the selling of public offices. Now, then why did such self-weakening expedience exist in Europe but not in China? The practices of mercenary armies, fennel offices, and sovereign loans involve commercialization and monetization of public functions. And these developments, in turn, can be traced to the expansion of trade. Trade expansion monetized not just the economic sphere, but also the military and administrative spheres. In medieval Europe, night service was gradually commuted into money payment, which then allowed rulers to substitute feudal levies with mercenary armies. The use of mercenaries then pushed up the cost of war so much that heavy and sustained borrowing had become a common practice by the mid-13th century. Now then the next question is, was, trade, was international trade absent in, in modern states China? Well, the very existence of a multi-state system also stimulated the expansion of international trade. But the relative timing when trade expansion occurred was different. In ancient China, trade began to expand after the onset of the, of the multi-state system. In Europe, trade began to expand in the 11th century, centuries before the onset of the early modern period. Now, the early relative timing of trade expansion in Europe then made it possible for European rulers to rely on financiers for ready cash. Between establishment of administrative capacity and reliance on intermediate resource holders. The first course was definitely a lot more difficult than the latter course. 
So when Charles Assessor set the ambitions on Italy in 1494, they turned to the easier measures among Charles' various policy tools. Then through international competition, France's self-weakening expedience was spread to other states, in particular France's number one rival, the United Habsburgs. In ancient China, by comparison, the much lower level of monetization at the onset of system formation deprived the earliest hegemony-seeking rulers of any easy recourse. The only way they could build larger armies and raise more revenues was to dig their hands deeper and deeper into their own societies. These differences in, in, in initial conditions and timing then set the two cases on different trajectories. I was told that I should try to wrap up, you know, as soon as possible, especially give time for questions and answers before one o'clock. So let me just, you know, uh, quickly conclude. What, should, what do we get from this comparative history? There can be many uh, conclusions and implications that we can draw, but the number one lesson that I get from this is that we should not take what, we should not read history backward and then take what had happened as what had to happen. Now, using ancient China as a counterfactual Europe, I highlight that the maintenance of checks and balances in Europe was highly contingent. And paradoxically, we should thank Olish in France and Spain for pursuing self-weakening expedients that were condemned by Enlightenment thinkers later. And using early modern Europe as a counterfactual China, I highlight that unification of the Warren State system was not at all inevitable or natural as what I learned in Chinese history books. And in fact, now that I have looked more at the post-Qing era, I realize that unification was not the norm even in post-Qing Chinese history. <coughs> now, if you guys can bear with me for two more minutes, can, can go a little bit further into that? Okay, great. Now, we just said earlier that Qin established universal domination in 221 <coughs> BC. But the Qin dynasty quickly collapsed in 206 BC. And then even just, you know, very minimal understanding of, of Chinese history will tell us that all subsequent dynasties eventually collapsed. Now, Chinese think of his Chinese history in terms of this cycle of dynasties, right? But the glass is actually half empty and half full. If we look at the part that is half empty, then Chinese history can also be seen as a system of, as a cycle of systems, I'm sorry. Now let's keep in mind that the Warren State system was only a very small sorry this not came up. The Warren State system was only a, actually a very small part of, of, of modern China. After unification, after unification, Qin expanded from just this much to the yellow part. And this yellow space is often what we call the Chinese heartland. And it's this yellow space that was repeatedly unified in subsequent Chinese history. Now, some Chinese historians, they want to argue that historical China should be defined by what the Qing dynasty later achieved at the height of its strength, which was about uh, from 1759 to 1840. Now, keep in mind that that um, uh, the PLC now does not have certain, certain pieces of territory in the northwest, outer Mongolia, and the northeast. And so if we take this very expansive definition of historical China, 
then Chinese history should really be understood as a succession of multi-state systems, except for 81 years, from 1759 to 1840. Now, that's not fair, right? We shouldn't do that. Let's just take the yellow space, Qin's uh, territorial reach at this height, as the baseline. Even if we do that, we get only 398 years of unification during the first millennium and 538 years of unification in the second millennium. Now, if you look at the two columns, duration and unification, the beginning years and the end years of each dynasty, as a rule, they do not qualify for unification. Now, why? Early Han is a very good example. Early Han could, first, early Han could not restore control over southern China. But the more important thing is, early Han, the central, in, during the early Han period, the central court could control only the western half of the empire, leaving the eastern part in the hands of independent kingdoms. Now then, if we understand Chinese history this way, that there are so many periods of division, what the international politics look like in those subsequent eras of uh, division. If the balance of power mechanism was weak in the, in the Warring States period, then it became even weaker in all subsequent periods of division. The major reason was that with Qin's example at achieving unification, then all subsequent power contenders understood that they could take all. And so international competition was a pure zero-sum game. And in that zero-sum game, counterbalancing strategies and ruthless stratagems were very common. But what, was, what became different was that with the expansion in size of this, what we understand as historical Zhongguo, historical China, then the mechanism of, the, of rising cost of expansion and administration began to kick, really kick in. Now, we looked at this map earlier. The diversity of geographical features of China also means that Unification of, the, of, of, of this, even, even Qin's territorial reach, the narrow definition of historical China, would always require mastery of infantry warfare in the north and naval warfare in the south. And conquest of the periphery would also require development of a formidable cavalry. And then at the same time, successive dynasties also resorted to self-weakened expedience. Now, though not to the same extent as what we see in early modern Europe, but the most important thing is that imperial courts, they gradually lost the capacity for direct rule. The Chinese dynasties never used military entrepreneurs as in Europe, but national armies gradually gave way to mercenary and auxiliary forces. And then from time to time, regional governors and commanders would accumulate or usurp enough political, fiscal, and military power to become warlords. So now that we see that unification was not the norm in Chinese history, another important thing is that unification was not even necessarily better than division in Chinese history. A lot of Chinese believe that unification is conducive to stability and prosperity, while division is a recipe for chaos and sufferings. Now it turns out that this Sinocentric view also goes against the Eurocentric view that it was international competition that nurtured liberty, prosperity, the rise of the West, and all these other good things. Now, I already addressed 
the emergence and demise of citizenship and the expansion and contraction of trade in modern days China. Now, once citizenship rights were buried by Qin, they were never revived in subsequent eras of division. But division always meant weaker state control over political, economic, and social life. Division also provided the exit option. And again, according to many Europeanists, the exit option surfaced an implicit reign on arbitrary power. And also, according to Morastic, it even served as a substitute for formal representation. And if we include the periphery, those dead peoples actually historically enjoy a lot more political and economic freedoms. And if I go back to my original research puzzle, why Chinese take for granted the coercive universal empire in China, the more I understand Chinese history, the more this question is puzzling to me. And I guess I have a lot to do in for a long time. Let me stop here. Okay. Um, well, first of all, 
actually in Europe, the whole idea that the European Christendom should be, you know, should form this one integral whole was also very deeply ingrained for a long, long time. But just because all these attempts of domination failed doesn't mean that, you know, there was no overarching ideology to justify that. Now, going back to ancient China, of course, we know that Mencius and all these other, actually many thinkers in the Warren States period, they advocated the idea of Tiansha Da Chong all under heaven. But for Mencius and these other scholars and these other thinkers, unification by what means? They wanted to see a sage ruler. They saw that, you know, with all these wars, people were suffering. They had to fight in, fight in war. They had to risk their lives. Families were separated. Also, heavy taxation and all kinds of these things, all because of war. That's true. But they wanted to find a sage ruler. And then what did Qin, how did Qin achieve unification? By mass killings, by, by ruthless stratagems. So is that the kind of model that all these, um, all these political thinkers advocated? No. And then in subsequent eras of division, how the people are now, you know, the mandate, was, the mandate of heaven was shifting. How do we know which guy has the, had the mandate? The one guy that managed to win brilliant battles. So in a, in a word, yes, there was this unification idea. It existed in Europe as in China. But in the end, unification, the success of unification was always achieved by war in Chinese history. And then the idea of nationalism, that all these Chinese thinkers actually travel to different places to sell their ideas. Well, it's interesting that actually there's this kind of postmodern uh, answer uh, in the mentions. And they argue that, that nationalism, loyalty, no, sorry, not nationalism, loyalty should be to a, to a high ideal, not to individual rulers. Even nowadays, we have this, this discussion about, about how we should distinguish between nationalism and, and, and patriotism. I like everything you did. I, I'm easy um, in some, some cases. And since I've, I've said that bandwagon is more prevalent than balancing, I'm more likely to see what you're saying. I, I agree with everything you said. I just wonder if, if, if uh, the presence of an offshore balancer in Europe, Britain, and, and now with the U.S. as an offshore balancer, if that might have uh, tipped the balance. It, it wouldn't. It doesn't. It doesn't disconfirm anything you're saying. I'm just saying that, that the presence of an offshore balancer, it seems to me, with Britain was the only state in the five coalitions uh, against Napoleon, or was it four? I don't know. I think it was five. Um, so, and they financed the war. So, so maybe if the Chinese system had had an offshore balancer, that might have. Thanks for such an easy question coming from Randy. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know who the worst But I think, now I just argued earlier that geography, we cannot say that there are geographical advantages for the, that favor uh, the offense in ancient China. But you, to some extent, I would agree with you that. Oh, can we turn? Can we turn you know, what if. That we, what if they were really Korea, uh, Korea, Japan they would have had served as the, the same role as kind of um, Britain? Now, I also argue that we cannot presume Britain to play this classical role of the balancer. That you know, it was so kind of altruistic that that they would just you know invest all the all these military resources and money to to help restore the balance. But rather, it was in the self-interest to defeat his his co-hegemon. But geography, I think 
does play an important role when we look at the, the, the geographical um, size and also geographical layout of, of the two systems. That there were, you're right, there was no offshore balancer. This, uh, the Warren State system was basically all self-contained uh, to itself. I don't. I don't think it is the key because because I still think that states' capacity or what I call self-strengthening reforms versus self-weakening experience really is very important. Um, because even if you can win more and you can you can earn conquest, but if you can't consolidate conquest, you can be conquest pay. In the end, you'll lose them. And in fact, it is kind of interesting that sorry. In subsequent eras. Han Wudi and also Tang Tai Zhong, they managed to conquer the western regions of what we call Xinjiang today. But they quickly lost those new conquests because they, just, they were just overcome by the mechanism of rising cost of expansion. Wow. Um, two questions. I, I like your point that we shouldn't read history backwards. Um, but I guess I'm wondering if there seem to be two ways in which you seem to be doing the same thing. Um, the first is this notion of self-strengthening and self-weakening reforms. It seems to me that how can we know whether they're self-strengthening or self-weakening, except after the fact? I mean, Hitler pursued a lot of stupid strategies, too, but he almost won. Had he won, he would have been seen as having been brilliant for strategies that you would call self-weakening in the long run. So there's kind of an anachronistic quality to the very definition of those two terms. The other place that I wondered about this, too, is that um, in the two logics that you have, balancing and domination, it seems like the actual means through which states would pursue their national interests in those two logics are actually very much the same. Self-strengthening, ruthless stratagems, so that maybe there's some difference in the margin and so on. Um, it's hard to tell the difference in the level of strategy. So it looks like those two logics really are logics when you talk about outcomes. If you get domination as an outcome, then you have a logic of domination. If you get balancing, you have a logic of balancing. And if it's outcomes, again, it seems like you're using the future in a sense to read back into the meaning of what the past was. Thank you for that question. Now, in a way, um I think you're quite right to say that it is very difficult for, for people to perceive them. Well, obviously, I w I'm not saying that European rulers were so stupid that they knowingly um, embarked on self-weakening, self-destructive expedience. They didn't know. They just basically did what was, part, what was the easiest. In what, and I presume at the same time that in both systems that these ambitious rulers would try to engage in, would pursue opportunistic expansion. So in doing so, they would need to build larger armies and raise more revenues. The question was how they could do that. They didn't know, obviously, at the time that this would lead them down to the role of self-weakening in the long term. So it is true that only in the long term, the effect of the difference between self-strengthening versus self-weakening, we can see it only when it accumulates over time. And this is why I resort to the, to, to the uh, paradigm of historical institutionalism, that really that the effect just builds up over time in the sense of this positive feedback. Now, is it then, you know, are we then reading history backward? I don't think so. I think we just should not presume what we see today as what had to happen. Presume that now we see, we see this unified China versus a divided Europe, that this, you know, this has always been the case. It's all, it should have always been like this, that this is destiny. I, I, this is my argument, that we shouldn't presume the, the current situation as what had always been, you know, our destiny. But how do we get to this, this, the current situation? How do we get to the status quo? And I argue that we have to look, look at history in the long durée. And this is another reason why I start from the formative, sta formative stages of history and search forward and look forward for differences. And this is another reason that why I look at two systems. In a way, ultimately, the, the um, argument about self-strengthening versus self-weakening I can see that, you know, I actually did not dream this up. 
I was talking to some graduate students at Princeton, you know, it's all a process of looking at two cases, trying to make sense out of a lot of these puzzles, that I eventually came up with this argument. Now, in, you know, of course, we all like to say that we developed this theory, and then we have this hypothesis, and then we apply to these cases, and everything, oh, somehow it just all fits perfectly. No, it was through this really messy process of looking at these cases, looking at what the theories tell us, and then in the end, came up, came up with this difference. At the same time, I also think that if not because I have these two cases that allow me to look at, you know, how history would, could have turned out differently, then this, uh, this argument that the European rulers pursue self-weakening experience would have convinced anyone. Now, it's just interesting that one of the reviews um, is from Thomas Ertman, and he, he now says that, you know, all the Europeans have known all along that European rulers pursue self-weakening experience, right? And to some extent, I mean, it's I borrow a lot from his book, His Birth of the Leviathan, and it is true that he has argued that, and some other people have also argued that. But at the same time, I don't think that that was the mainstream argument. And of course, if not because Europeans had already made that argument, you know, who am I? I what do I know about European history to say that European rulers pursue that weakening experience? And, um, and then another thing about the competition between the logic of domination and the logic of balancing, and how do we know that, you know, when in the end we see the outcome of domination, then we say it is the logic of domination that explains the outcome. In the end, if we see checks and balances that, you know, the logic of balancing then explains the outcome. I argue, actually, that in all cases, we have to look at the strategic international competition of both logics. It's not one or the other. We really have to see how the two actually interact and compete and then get the outcomes that we see. Can we? Well, again, as I said earlier, that I mean, even though my my Hong Kong friends like to joke that that maybe Ch we Chinese are just smarter, it's not. Ancient Chinese rulers they embarked on self-strengthening reforms from from day one because. They could, they were, because the level of monetization was so low, they had no other way. They had no easy recourse. What happened in Europe was that there was, a, there was an easy way out, and therefore that explains the difference. To some extent, it is a question of historical contingency. And, um, and then in the end, another thing that's interesting also is in subsequent Chinese history, as I said, then imperial rulers, also in these, these emperors, then also began to, to follow self-weakening experience to some extent. So it's not exactly, it, it's essentially you do what you, what you have to do. If, you, if, you have, if the easier course is available, then it is kind of, I guess, a natural tendency for people to, to follow the easier course. Um, state formation processes in early modern Europe were situated in a set of relations with the wider world. American gold and silver, Caribbean sugar, African slaves, the Europe, China, uh, India trade, and so on. Um, in neither of your you know, cases, which you've sort of got as self-contained without much talk about what's going on with the rest of the world, you don't talk about the rest of the world. So what difference does imperialism make to the kinds of things that you're talking about? 
It is a good point, and I, I, and I actually classify it as kind of what we call in, not initial conditions, but environmental conditions. So in that sense, then, now, Warren States, China was relatively isolated. Now, not quite, though, because actually there were zones in the north already. But if we define the system as kind of in the typical IR sense that these different st states share the same language, the same culture, that they could talk to each other, therefore actually it's on the basis of shared culture that they could even engage in the balance of power in the first place. So in that sense, then we can see Warren States China as a system. Now, what about Europe? You're quite right. Europe was a lot less self-contained, a lot less isolated compared with Warren States China. That Europe was already expanding in, into, into the rest of the world. And I think that actually, remember earlier I said that European rulers did not pursue ruthless strategies, at least not against fellow Europeans. Well, they did against other less civilized peoples. And so my argument is that that environmental condition provided outlets for both territorial competition and also market balance strategies, thus making territorial competition within the European continent a lot less zero sum. I want to ask about language. If I were in lit crit or something like that, I think I might observe that the state building that you identify in Europe takes place after Latin and fragment and the vulgar tongues and those separate national communities. And James Sheehan, the German historian, makes this argument, right, that a lot of German state building was about trying to get German speakers into one community even if it didn't work out too well. Um, I'm curious about that in China, and this sort of follows up on Johanna's argument from before, right? I mean, by the time you get the European state building, you have cultural communities that are relatively distinct Right? Then you have sort of like a separate call to story during which you have culture community trying to feel their way towards some sort of organization, whatever. Is that the case in China? Was there enough sort of fragmentation or enough sort of linguistic offshoots that you had sort of lots of little states or that the language is close enough that sort of that helped to justify a larger sort of imperial project? It's a very good question. In fact, in the Warren State system, states also spoke different languages. Um, but they used the language of qi uh, in the diplomatic uh, meetings. So kind of like English now or Latin in the early modern period, some, to some extent French. So that's an interesting question. Now, now we think of Chinese as one language, right? But guess what? Even after more than 2,000 years of standardization of the Chinese language, we still have so many different dialects that are really incomprehensible to one another. I am Cantonese. I actually had to learn Mandarin. And then um, my kid, I've been speaking to her in Cantonese all these years, and this year I put her in the Mandarin school. She cried. Basically, it was like torture for two months until she finally picked it up. And so these different languages, essentially, are really incomprehensible. And a lot of um, people who, a lot of, of Westerners who learn the Chinese language, when they go to Hong Kong, they actually don't know how to read in the Chinese newspaper, although they can read newspapers in Taiwan and in Beijing because we use slang. So this is important to keep in mind that China, even though we see it as a unified entity today, but there's actually a huge degree of diversity, even now, even after 2,000 years of, of unification. Um, and coming together as you're looking at this. Because one of the things that also popped up for me was a different ideology. You don't really talk about the ideology, but for example, you talked about self-weakening strategy of going for mercenaries. But part of the reason why is kings were expected to pay for all government out of their private revenues. The only time they could ask for taxes 
were in extraordinary circumstances because it, it violated private property laws. So I guess that was something I was wondering in terms of a comparable ideology of how government should be paid for in the warring states period and, and how they thought about private property. And would that explain some of the differences, not just the level of commerce? So I guess two questions. In a way that, you know, the level of commerce and also the expectations of what Keynes was supposed to do, to some extent, they all kind of fall under what I call initial conditions. In a way, they really are connected together. Um, because in the Warren State system, the, the spring autumn Warren State period, the ancient Chinese system, more or less kind of, it's interesting, it began with more or less a clean slate, and therefore a lot of these things just had to be figured out from scratch. And you're quite right that in Europe, because, the, because of the periodization that I look at, 1495, and therefore a lot of things had already been firmly established. But then even a lot of these principles, for example, that you cannot raise taxes unless there's this basically this demonstrable uh, 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 danger. But a lot of these rules, even when they, were, they have been established for a, long, uh, for a long time, could still be violated. There were norms and the, the norms could be violated. But another important thing is I do uh, uh, think that this lot of dynamics of competing logics actually can explain other historical, system, uh, other historical systems and other periods. So I, what I'm doing now is to take it to look at the post-Chinese um, era. But on the other hand, I think we can actually explain Europe in an early period, but we have to look at you know, other historical nuances as well. is rudimentary and after a while non-existent. Um, there's no um, group, group of stratagems are very rarely uh, employed. Um, it's not Machiavellian in, in the sense that other competing powers were, and yet they establish uh, an empire, and much of the machinery of government uh, only comes after the establishment of an empire. Um, in other words, it seems to me that there are other strategies, um, much beyond the ones that the group uh, examining, to create uh, military power uh, that's capable of uh, unifying the vast empire. It, um, this is actually a good point, and in a way, how should I say this? Um, many people have asked me, so why don't you compare Rome and ancient China, right? Because, you know, as you said earlier, that that would mean that you don't, you compare across space, but not across time. And anytime you compare across time, especially with difference of 2,000 years, it makes people really nervous. Now, I was very nervous when I began this too. But um, the one, the, the, the most expedient reason, actually probably closest to the truth, is that as a political scientist, I've had a hard enough time to tell people, you know, why ancient Chinese history matters for the contemporary period. If I had compared Rome and, and ancient China, then I don't think I would have got a job at all. But <laughs> be that as it may, another thing that's also important to keep in mind is that the dynamics, the details, this logic of, of this logic of the dynamics of competing logics, it is very abstract. So the, what the ingredients that go into it, in a way, how I come up with this is because I actually look at two cases. The whole concept of self-strengthening comes from the ancient Chinese experience. It also, the term self-strengthening comes from the essentially Chinese literature. So if I look at other cases now, the one thing is important is that I remember many IR people ask me, so 
how does this work in other historical systems? And other than, you know, if I had looked at, at ancient Rome, then I would not have got a job. Another important thing is I'm really looking at two cases of over 700 years, together up to more than 700 years. And we're really looking at civilizations. As it is, I don't think I know enough, you know, Europeans think that I don't know enough about European history and Chinese historians of China think that I don't know enough about Chinese history. How can I ever imagine myself looking at all these other historical systems? And therefore, in the end, it has to be a group project. I have to really look at what other people are working on it. And thankfully, that actually Bill Woolforth and other people have coordinated these joint projects to look at other, other historical systems. But you're quite right that in the end, going back to the question of your question, is that in the end, I have this very abstract idea of this dynamics of competing logics. The substance, what goes into it, then we actually have to look at the concrete cases. And another thing I'm actually sometimes a little bit nervous about is that um, I want to argue against walls. I want to argue that you know we can't really, ex ex really develop a universal theory in the sense that you X and Y, but at the same time, am I advocating an alternative universal theory that is this logic, uh, dynamics of competing logics everywhere? Um, I still haven't come up to, to, to a decision on that, but in the end, if we want to say that ultimately, history is unpredictable a priori, that we really have to look at historical facts on the ground, then I guess at that level, I think the, the, the um, framework should work. Uh, I'm sorry, but my questions are also about comparisons uh, to Europe-China. First, you mentioned something called peaceful encroachment. Uh, Great peace meal, not peaceful. Peace meal. Peace meal. Okay, uh, so it was, it was aggressive. That takes care of my question. Second question, uh, why, to go back to the argument and start with Johannes, uh, your, in your puzzle, the assumption is that unification is achieved by direct coercion. Uh, so that, that, I think, reveals a certain kind of uh, ontological bias, if you will, uh, that the structures are, are very material. If I understand correctly, uh, the argument about difference between China and Europe, uh, especially in the dynastic cycle period, is, is the so it lies in things such as the tributary system. There's no equivalent in the European experience. Uh, no, no state paid tribute to Philip II, Charles V, Napoleon, or anything like that. In the Chinese case, if you say that dynastic, dynastic cycles should be seen as cycles of states. Cycle of systems. Systems, but uh, again, the assumption is that it's very much about state making uh, in, in the material sense. Now, I'm saying, how, do you, how would you control, let's say, for the arguments that uh, Europeans never had something like that. John Fairbank, uh, in his writing on Chinese lore, talked about this as the major difference. Uh, in Europe, there would be no equivalent of, say, Kingdom of Sulu paying tribute to the celestial court. Uh, so that, that would be one point of difference, which would suggest that uh, diffuse sort of ideational structural coercion or compliance, what was the difference between the two? Yeah, I know one of my good friends, David, David Kang, he, he argues that the historical Asian system is hierarchical and it is not, not anarchical at all. But, and because, precisely because of this idea that there was distributory system in China, imperial China, the imperial Chinese history. But when we look more closely, you really look at the treaty terms. For example, the treaty between Han and the Xiongnu in the north. Well, the treaty terms says that 
The Han court had to pay these huge amounts of money, uh, huge amounts of gold and silver every year, and silk and whatever. At the same time, the Han court had to marry a princess to, to the Xiongnu uh, leader. You know, in a way, who is, which side was attributed to, to, to which side? Now, one thing is, actually, when China was weak, when the, when the, when the historical China was weak, it was actually paying a lot more than it got in return. And two, in many cases, when China was divided, literally divided into, into multi-state systems, these different Chinese rulers, they just had to swallow their pride and dealt with all these other different entities as equals. So again, it's to some extent, I mean, I grew up also learning that it's just hierarchical system, distributory relations. When you really look at history, when you look at what these treaty terms, it's the story is very different. Yeah, I, I want to go back to an earlier question. Um, and it's not, I think, comparative at all, um, except about the basic logic. I don't, like Alex, I don't see the difference between the two logics, the logic of domination and the logic of balancing. I can see how you might make some comments after the fact when you see, did you become a dominant power or are you really a balancer? But would you explain again why these are different logics? Why isn't it just one logic and you wait to see how it comes out? What do you mean by one logic and how it's it comes just, out? Call it whatever you want. You call it the logic of domination. And if you don't dominate but you balance, then you call it the logic of balance. It just seems like it's the same thing looked at Retrospectively, you could say, oh, they were balancing because they never achieved domination, or they were pursuing the logic of domination because, for whatever short of time frame you want to count, they dominated. I mean, was Athens dominating or balancing when it creates the Athenian League? Well, if it beats Sparta, it's dominating. If it, if it, if it, if it you know, just balances for a while, it's balancing. I, I don't see that there's a difference in the logic. Um, uh, I kind of made some mistake, but anyway. I, what I want to do is that um, how I developed this framework, the dynamics of computing logics, and I remember for some reason that I, when I was at grad school, I read a lot um, uh, written by Elster. And then I was, for some re reason, that I was just kind of all fascinated by his stuff. And there was one thing, one particular sentence stuck in a footnote, and that I could never take that away from my brain. He says, the opposite of a profound truth is always another profound truth. And then later on, when I looked at other, um, other analysis, and then, of course, observe uh, the systems effect, that you, look, you have to look at simultaneously positive feedback and negative feedback. And then also, um, Owen argues that when he looks at the democratic piece, we really have to look at two forces working at opposite forces. And because these, there are these two opposite forces working at the same time, at, 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 working at the same time, so the effect of one actually over, sometimes overwhelms the other. And we see when we, whatever result we see, then we it kind of covers highs that there are actually two opposite forces going at the same time. And this is what I want to argue that we can't just say that because the law, because we see. Domination is the outcome, success of domination is the outcome. And therefore, well, it is the logic of domination. What I have repeatedly emphasized is that the Eurocentric logic of balancing also operated in the ancient Chinese system. And unification of the system was not at all natural. That even as late as 247 BC, the system could have been preserved. I, that's not, I guess my question, I, I think the question is this. If I, if I set out to balance, what would I be doing differently than what I would do if I set out to dominate? 
then you really have to engage in, basically you have to really take active part uh, in, in building these balancing coalitions. You have to refrain from pursuing domination in the first place, that you yourself do not use your in increased strength to, to pursue domination. But all the strengthening mechanisms and everything else would be the same. So then the choice whether I dominate or balance would be, as it were, the circumstances around me when I decide, do I go for it all or do I not? But then it's the same logic just up to the last moment when I have to make a decision. Not necessarily, because what I see in both early modern Europe and ancient China is that great powers, when they could, they would always seek opportunistic expansion. And then, but on the other hand, I also want to emphasize that even though self-strengthening reforms can significantly enhance the logic of domination, but still, a system of self-strengthened states, while it is a lot more unstable than a system of self-weakened states, but still, checks and balances are still possible. Because they can, because again, the, the typical realist logic, the ambitions can balance against ambitions. But my argument is that a system of self-strengthened states is, is a lot more unstable and is more vulnerable to the, the emergence of a universal Leviathan. And at different points in history, that, you know, it's, the outcome is really un, un, unpredictable until the final end that we see, we see universal domination. But even, it, even, at the, even um, after China achieved universal domination in 221 BC, that system collapsed. So we really have to look at how history moves um, over time. And this is what I mean that, you know, I really want to see how, we really have to understand two opposite forces working at cross purposes.